welcome to Bonnet to Dawn, the show that compares the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this is the third episode of our series on Mansfield Park. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Patricia Matthew. So um, we spoke about teaching Mansfield Park alongside other abolitionist texts, which is something that I've been interested in sort of discussing since seeing the Jane Austen exhibit at the Bodleian, Mm -hmm. which is at Oxford. I know. I've been kicking myself since you went to that. Uh, (laughs) Really good exhibit. Really good exhibit, you guys. Um, So, yeah. Uh, if you could time travel back to that point, you you really should. I went to the Bodleian gift shop this year and I was like, mm-hmm. maybe they've still got the book. Got just like a thing, like a yeah. couple of things. No. The book was great. <laughs> Did you buy it? Yeah, it's around here somewhere. I'll find it. Yeah. Okay. Um. So since today we're going to be exploring slavery and abolition and Mansfield Park, I thought I would give a really, probably a really bad history lesson, if I'm honest. (laughs) I thought I would give a little history and context to these issues so you could see like how they were talked about and received in Jane Austen's day. Because I think that, as Trisha says, a lot of people are under this impression that Austen is just like hermetically sealed off from race and Mm -hmm. like slavery politics. Like she lives in a bubble. And class politics. And class politics. And that's not true. That's not the world that she was living in. And so I think that we should just maybe discuss that a little bit. Yeah. All right. Deep, deep breath because I got a lot of talking. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) We'll sip coffee. Sip a coffee. We're next to each other, and it's really nice to record like this, except the desk isn't very wide. And so we're, we're just like really, really close, really close. close. Just slurping coffee like. <laughs> oh, wow, I could hear that audio. So let's go back to 1772. Remember that year? Oh, I, it was a very good year. Good year for you. So um, that is the year that Lord Mansfield rules in favor of the runaway black slave, James Somerset. Now, um, Mansfield is also the uncle to the biracial Dido Elizabeth Bell. Watch the film, guys. Great movie. Matthew Good is in it. My favorite. Austin actually knew Lady Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. So that's Dido's cousin um, who was raised alongside her. Um, so Austin actually had dinner with her several times, and um, Jane even wrote to Cassandra about it and called her boring, which you may remember from our Helena Kelly interview that was yes. mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a great article that we will discuss later, um, which actually talks about those meetings between Jane Austen and Elizabeth and whether or not Austen actually ever saw that famous portrait of Elizabeth and Dido Bell. I'm getting sidetracked. I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's take this back to 1772. Lord Mansfield presides over Somerset versus Stuart, and he rules that chattel slavery was unsupported by common law in England and Wales, although the position elsewhere in the British Empire was left ambiguous. Now, in his ruling, Lord Mansfield has this really poetic line about a slave no longer being a slave once they've had the chance to breathe the free air of England. Uh, this is actually later referenced in William Cooper's poem, The Task. He says, slaves cannot breathe in England. If their lungs receive our air, they are free. 
The task then goes on to say that um, we have no slaves at home, then why abroad? Which is a great line. Great question, William. Uh, Cooper, I should mention, was one of Austin's favorite authors and is quoted in a little book called Mansfield Park. Um, Speaking of Austin, she was born just four years after this ruling in 1776. Keeping this timeline going. Now, let's take it to 1787 and the fight to abolish slavery gets another boost after Thomas Clarkson writes an essay condemning slavery. Now, Clarkson will go on to write uh, about a slave captain called Robert Norris. No relation to Mansfield Park. In his books on abolition. And Austin is a big fan of these books, actually. She professes her love for Clarkson's writing in a letter to Cassandra in 1813 while she is writing a book called Mansfield Park. Unrelated, though, still. Unrelated. Yeah. 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 Um, so that <laughs> that Captain Norris guy, too, like, I think I read a, around him and just I, I don't have the notes down, but I'm pulling this from memory. I believe he was like testifying like for um, for the like the slave owners. Mm-hmm. And he basically was telling everyone that, like, everything's fine. Like, you know what? These slaves are treated great. You know, like not, the boats are great. Like, don't worry about it. And not just like an anti-abolitionist, but like a notably, like famously anti-abolitionist. Yes. Like someone who comes up again and again and again in conversations about right. the abolition movement. Right. Definitely. Like a notable person. Yes. Um, sidebar, actually, and I found this really interesting. Clarkson forms an abolitionist committee with Josiah Wedgwood. And I think this is really interesting for two reasons. One, the Wedgwoods are Gaskell relations, like hashtag Unitarians Unite. Also, <laughs> maybe take a shot for Elizabeth Gaskell. No, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Listen, I we can, don't want people getting drunk listening to the show. Well, I can relate Elizabeth Gaskell to Harriet Beecher Stowe. So I think you should take a shot. Oh, I, oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, that do it. Do it right now. Thank you. And the second reason is our guest today actually wrote a fascinating article about abolitionist teapots by Wedgwood and the abolitionist tea parties and sugar protests that were connected with this. And I bring this up because I've heard people say that, you know, someone like Austin, white, respectable, wouldn't have participated in the abolitionist movement because of, you know, her position in society. But it really was a very common cause for someone like of her class, of her status. So yeah, actually incorrect. (laughs) Great article too. Like I, you know, didn't know it was going so far as like merchandise being made as well. Cause, and like, I think, so when you think that we live in like a capitalist society, it's been that way for a long time. Then actually, if you consider like products that are being made or products that are pulled or things that go through a rebrand, you know, anything that's really to do with like a company that's desperate to make money, doing a certain thing or like appealing to a certain audience or mm-hmm. saying something, it's a good way of showing how opinions shift and how things go into the mainstream. Mm-hmm through merchandise right Right. and i think this article is really uh, a a good way of just exploring that further yes and we will be dropping that article in the facebook group um after this episode drops so you guys should definitely read it so actually i um 
was researching this a little bit more just to see like how popular abolition was as a cause. And I came across um, another article on the National Archives site. Um, Hannah, will you just read this paragraph here that I pulled from that? Recent studies show that in addition to the more well-known abolitionists Mary Burkett, Hannah Moore and Mary Wollstonecraft, a considerable body of working and middle-class women in Britain were involved in the campaign from the very early stages. These white women spoke out against the slave trade, boycotted slave-grown produce and wrote anti-slave trade verses to raise awareness of the violation of family life under slavery. The strength of their support for the campaign can also be gauged through their subscriptions to the abolition society society, as the historian Claire Midgley reveals, 10% of the 1787 to 88 subscribers were women. In 1807, slavery is abolished. And then in 1811, slavery is abolished, but for real this time. So meaning they're actually enforcing the law and imprisoning people. Many believe that Mansfield Park is set in 1808. So, um, there is a lot of back and forth over when Austin set this book. Mm-hmm. Now, Austin scholar Edward Southam, so he was one of the sort of the early scholars to sort of bring up this connection between Mansfield Park and slavery, believes that it was set in 1812 due to Edmund re- referencing a book called Crab's Tales, which was published in September of 1812. Okay, so that like debunks it being in 1808 because the book's not out yet. and Yeah, so it's like, was it an oversight on Austin's part? Which I feel like is unlikely. It's unlikely. Um, a lot of people believe it was set in 1808 because of an almanac, because there is like one date so in the it, book, right? The, the ball is on a Thursday, uh, Thursday like the 22nd or Thursday the 20th of December. Or, it's something oh, like yeah, that, yeah. Like yeah. So, and so they look up which year that that date falls on the Thursday and right. it was 1808. Right. And so it's kind of an interesting date if it is 1808 because it is during this period where slavery is abolished, but it's like not really ab- abolished. Mm-hmm. They're not really like enforcing it. So it really does lend to this whole like hypocrisy theme that she's got going yeah, on. Definitely. But if it's later, then um, it actually is sort of set in this period of time where slavery is on the decline. And that's taking over national conversation. So both are relevant, but it's just kind of like, what exactly is Austin responding to in this book? Could be either or. Could be both. So um, actually, there is a really great paragraph in a really great article that I will also post in our Facebook group. And that article is called The Chronology of Mansfield Park by J.A. Downey. And Hannah, do you want to read this this paragraph? This West Indian prosperity paragraph? You sneaky bitch. I know. (laughs) Set me up. There are, in fact, reasons to assume not only that Austin was aware of this slump, but that in making Mrs. Norris observe in Volume 1, Chapter 3, that Sir Thomas's means will be rather straitened if the Antigua estate is to make such poor returns, she was deliberately drawing attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, Mansfield Park, as a reminder, published in 1814. So really, the conversation has been building and building and building from 1772 onwards. Yeah, which is, you know, Austin's entire life. Right. Her entire life. Exactly. 
So this is in the national conversation. So um, I'm sorry. I know that timeline was kind of a lot to start this uh, this episode, but um, I do think it's really important to try and gain as much context that we need for this period while discussing Mansfield Park, because as you can see, conversations of slavery and race were really dominating the political conversation. And while abolition was a very popular stance, um, there was a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And in fact, like on some of these votes, you have a lot of MPs who are voting to abolish slavery, still like benefiting financially from it, right? So <laughs> a lot of hypocrisy. Um, and I know that line, I just, I kept coming back to it because I was thinking, man, they're making a lot of ripples, but they're not making a lot of waves. And that's something that Hannah says quite a bit about Fanny Price. <laughs> I just highlighted it and shook my head like, you're stealing my <laughs> Fanny Price thoughts. Um, I will say as well, it's not just dominating the like conversation at the time that Mansfield Park was written. I think this conversation has dominated our conversation about Mansfield Park as well. During yeah. the read-along, we've kind of had like the same three conversations Mm -hmm. in each thread and that has been the is Mansfield Park about the abolition is it an abolitionist text Mm -hmm. conversation one Mary versus Fanny conversation two Mm -hmm. and Edmund Bertram is so gross (laughs) conversation (laughs) three so I think it's we don't have an Edmund we don't have an Edmund episode coming up no we don't I'm really glad that we had last week's episode specifically talking about Mary and and Fanny and then you know this week talking about this as well so right yeah and some funny in this week as well coming up yeah there is so now let's move on to the interview for a bit yes the interview so our pal Devney Loza who you might remember from last week uh introduced us to Trisha who teaches courses in British romanticism the history of the novel British abolitionist literature at Montclair State University. She's also published essays and reviews in women's writing, 19th century gender studies and the Keats Shelley Journal. She is like a real bonnet person. Actually, when you read her resume, you're like, yep, mm-hmm, yep, yep. This you tracks. should be on the show. Yep. yep this all makes sense. <laughs> um, Trisha is great. We had like a three hour conversation that was just like therapy. It was really wonderful. Um, my God. Guys, if you go to Montclair University, take one of her classes. They sound fascinating. Um, We jump into the interview with us really talking about uh, being women of color and how we respond to period literature and how um, people respond to us reading period literature, which I think is an interesting conversation that I sort of wanted to tack on here. So I hope you guys enjoy and we will be back in a sec. I reviewed Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist and everybody paid attention to different essays. The essay I thought was interesting about was her interest in the, I think it wasn't the Bobsy Twins, but it was some series about white girls. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember, Sweet Valley High. Yes. And I really loved what she said. She said, I didn't want to be white. I didn't think I was white. I knew I was not like them, but their stories resonated. And, mm-hmm. um, the book I am writing, which is not a novel, but it is, so I'm working on two book projects right now. And the other book I'm writing is about what it means, what it means to think of as a middle-class black woman about questions of race and oppression and empire in a region, in the Regency era, in a period where my whole life I was taught um, that was not a question. 
right? Mm -hmm. You could go all through, I went through college and a good college and read, I read 19th century fiction my whole life. And I was old before I realized that there were black people present, um, that they right. were present in the fiction that we don't read anymore, that the question of the transatlantic slave trade, like I said, all of that was, was really near the end of my graduate education. And my first scholarly projects didn't really engage with race at all. Um, and then my students started, I noticed in the classroom, whenever the question of race came up in the 19th century, my students were intensely curious about it. And they had a lot of questions and they were asking them without the angst that I was hearing from my friends who taught contemporary African-American literature. Mm -hmm. And I realized um, my working theory is that there's a kind of buffer that allows them to explore these delicate conversation, these delicate issues and questions because it's not in the United States and it's not now. And so they can think about England and they don't have, I teach at a really diverse school and I get Austin, a few Austin fans, but my students are very open to the whole concept of the 19th century as a new era to explore. Mm -hmm. So I teach a course, um, my romanticism course really now focuses on abolitionist literature and culture. And for my students now, it's totally normal to sit in a classroom and think about Wordsworth, to think about Keats, to think about Coleridge, to think about um, Austin's contemporaries, to think about Austin as engaged in questions about race and empire and the slave trade. And they, their questions for me always are about what we do with what we're thinking about the 19th century and the 21st, but they don't have the resistance that I think would have been there when I first tried to write this screenplay or right. in different institutions. They don't feel that Austin is this sacred text that's quote unquote free from politics. Mm -hmm. They, um, and they re and they do, they read her, they read her alongside Mariah Edgeworth. They read her with Susan Ferrier. Well, I don't teach Ferrier very often because her novels are not so great, but I teach excerpts from Belinda and they just take, they just sort of take for granted. They're not particularly, they're mildly surprised, but they're not aghast. And I remember teaching, I just, I'm publishing an essay in uh, Texas Studies for Language and Literature, or Literature and Language, and it's about, it's titled Jane Austen and the Abolitionist Turn. And I talk about this one graduate seminar I taught, it was an Austin seminar, and Emma was, if the, if the graduate students knew Emma, they knew Woodhouse, I mean, they knew um, Gwyneth Paltrow and they knew Amy Heckerling. And mm -hmm. the white women in class, generally speaking, the white straight women in class were really uncomfortable with how unlikable Emma Woodhouse is. And they, they were clearly reading Austen in a very different way. And they were reading her in a smart way, but they really identified with identified with those characters. They saw themselves as Lizzie Bennet. They loved the fantasy of Knightley and um, Darcy. And so that was half the class. The other half of the class were people of color, uh, queer students, uh, it not, well, I think, no, I thought that was it. People, students of color, queer students. And they were entirely frustrated <laughs> with this heteronormative fantasy. So there was this mm -hmm. interesting tension in the class. And then when we got to Emma, people were really, it sort of, she sort of sparked different questions because she's not, she's not a heroine in the way that 
Lizzie Bennett is or right. the um the um oh Eleanor the Dashwood sisters she's not Moreland she's very different and in part because she's particularly she's not doesn't particularly interested she's not particularly interested in her own idea of marriage and right. and that was shocking to the white female students who sort of identified with the cinematic um, Emma and refreshing for the queer students and the students of color, mostly black and Latinx who were thought, oh yeah, okay, this is an interesting question. What are your thoughts on Fanny Price? Huh, so I don't think she's particularly likable. I, maybe it was mm -hmm. Lionel Trilling that said you would be very cautious to accept an invitation for an evening with Fanny Price. <laughs> um, I. I think of Mansfield Park primarily, I love Mary, okay, here's, I, I love Mary Crawford. And I, yes. and I think if, I think if I were going to read it with a large group of people, I would see the whole novel through Mary Crawford's eyes because mm -hmm. she's so wisely cynical about what's at work there. And she so understands the, nat the nature of currency in Mansfield Park and how the different young women are really just part of a market, right? I feel like it's a novel that's permeated with markets of all kinds. It's not just the marriage market. It, um, so, the, so my book is about the, how uh, courtship novels and Regency era culture kind of relies on white women deploying the abolitionist movement for their own political ends at the same time that they talk about feeling you know, the suffering of the poor enslaved Africans. And I think mm -hmm. that 21st century models of feminism and protest rely on that model. So that's the, that's the and it's sort of all mediated for me thinking about sugar. Sugar mm -hmm. as a trope, sugar as a commodity, um, sugar as a, as a status symbol. And so the fact for me for Mansfield Park, the fascinating thing about it is that it's all set on these, the plantation that we see and the plantation that we don't see. That's where um, Sir Thomas goes when he leaves. And after he leaves, everything falls apart. The moral fiber, the moral fabric of the, the family kind of, it's always, it's been frayed, but it's ruptured in all of these ways. And then Fanny mm -hmm. Price sort of emerges over the course of the novel as the moral center of that world. And she's so pious and so cautious. And, um, but at the same time, it emerges as being very not malleable in the way that she was expected to be because she's the poor relative who's been brought to be improved by her wealthier um, by her wealthier relatives. So I don't love Mansfield Park, but in now for me, it's probably the most interesting novel because of what it tells us about the intersections of the marriage market and the marriage con the literally marriage contract law and the way people were thinking about the um, abolition of the slave trade. So I don't, yeah. does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah, so I told my students, I was teaching an Austin seminar to celebrate one of my anniversaries at Marquette, maybe my 10th anniversary. And I joked with my students, I said, let's just imagine for a second that Fanny Price is black. Mm -hmm. And they, my stu I, I really love them when they are skeptical about me in just the right way. Like Dr. Matthew, Fanny Price is not black. Like, I know, but let's say she's a system. Like, no, we can't. But think about <laughs> where she exists in the ecosystem of Mansfield Park. She's brought in from a slave trading city. 
to the country home. Um, she's supposed to be improved upon. She's there to be a companion. There's anxiety about her being ending up being attractive to her cousins, which is actually what happens over the course of the novel. And she has these moments where she's actually put forward. This is when Sir Thomas returns from Antigua and sees her. And the language, I, the language is so interesting in that moment because he's surveying, he's surveying Mansfield Park, his estate, after having returned from settling the problems in the West Indies. And so he talks to his groundskeeper, he visits with the people who run his accounts, and he wants to see how Fanny Price is doing, and she shows up, and now she's beautiful and clearly ready to go to market. And mm -hmm. I think that language is very much about property. Um, and so to the degree that you, you read 19th century women writers talking about themselves and feeling like chattel and feeling like property Mary Wollstonecraft um, does this a lot in the vindication of the rights of women, even though she means slavery in myriad different ways, I feel like Fanny Price is the most sort of young white woman as property in, mm -hmm. in all of, I would say in all of Austin. Even though in Sense and Sensibility, when uh, Marianne gets sick, I can't, I'm, I'm gonna forget his name because I'm a little bit distracted, but when she gets ill, um, maybe it's Mr. Palmer says, oh, it's too bad that she's lost her blush because she's not married yet. And his point is she's not gonna be worth as much on the marriage market because she or she's physically depleted in some way. Um, Fanny is that from the time she's brought in and the fact that she ends up married at the end to the second son uh, is I think really very interesting. And the fact that she resists Henry Crawford who would have elevated her financially and socially in all of these ways I think is really fascinating. So I think that it's a novel that is not fun. I don't think you can write a novel in which the in which the patriarch owns slaves. There's just no getting around that darkness. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's very rich because the way that each character is tugging at, at the moral fabric of the country, it doesn't feel like it's a, and just specifically about that family in that space. So I compare Mansfield Park and I hope you guys will love The Woman of Color, A Tale because I really want to check it out. Yeah, actually, it really is do. not sparkling. I mean, it is a didactic mm -hmm. novel, but it, I was, I read it. I can't remember why I initially thought about it in Mansfield Park. Maybe because Mansfield, I don't know why, because when I was growing up and sort of intellectually in grad school, Mansfield Park was the only Austin novel that seemed political about race and slavery and empire. And so mm -hmm. when I started reading The Woman of Color, a tale, um, about a young woman whose father was uh, um, owned as a plant as a planter in the West Indies, who upon his death, he she's the product of his rape. That's not how it's described in the novel, but of a enslaved woman, and he he uh, he recognizes her and he puts her in his will. But in order to inherit, she has to travel to England to marry her cousin, mm -hmm. and then she can have access. Then she gets the the contents of the will and in exchange he has to agree to marry a biracial woman and he has to take her name and so oh. yeah it's fascinating which i which happened from time to time but it's rare and so mm -hmm. this novel is a story and i'm not going to say more because i don't want to spoil it for you but the novel is the story of her sort of being an english parlor culture and mm -hmm. as both a participant but an outsider um an observer and a potential member through marriage. 
so it seems so interesting to me to think of her and Fanny Price and where their stories intersect, intersect and where they depart. Um, Fanny is white after all. And so mm. whatever her root, whatever her background, she can, she's, and, and Olivia, her name is Olivia Fairfield. Can you believe, can you have a better name? <laughs> <laughs> of Olivia Fairfield, who's more polished. She's a little older. She's more polished. Um, she's clearer about, she's more wealth uh, and, and actually performs a kind of European um, accomplishment. And, and yet Fanny, Fanny's narrative goes in one direction and um, Olivia goes in another. And it's not entirely clear what the audience is supposed to, what the reader is supposed to take away from that. And so, oh. yeah. And I write about it in one of my book chapters. I write about that novel, The Woman of Color, A Tale, and Ama Asante's Bell. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I'm thinking about different kinds of contracts, the marriage contract, um, the social contract, the narrative contract. And this is where I think about Austin readers who I think increasingly, uh, the, particularly I think younger generations, and that's not fair actually, because I was at an Austin event and A, um, I, I think I may have been the only person of color or one of the few people of color. And everyone was sort of excited and sort of took for granted. They weren't overly excited, but they were happy to see me. And they were not at all phased about the idea of Austin and race. I think that the knee-jerk reaction when we say, oh, she wasn't political, really people think that it's a PC uh, way to sort of cancel or challenge or criticize Austin. And I don't think, I think mm -hmm. she's richer for thinking about these things. I mean, you know, the thing that I was just to go back to why people I think want Austin to be apolitical. I think that for my students, they don't resist that so much. But I'm always surprised when the conversation turns to thinking about race and representation, which to be frank, it doesn't happen so often in my other classes because my British literature classes have not been organized around that question. But it, it comes up in my, it's come up in my theory class from time to time, usually because my co-teaching partner is, teaches American Lit, where it's just more prevalent. Mm -hmm. And Almost always there's a moment where I, my students are uncomfortable because they want to fix the problem. So when, when they, mm. so when they think about, so their whole idea about thinking about race and representation and oppression is not let's study it, it's let's fix it. And so they find it overwhelming. Right. They find it over, I, I picked up on some tension in a class one time and I said, are you all just like, it makes you feel guilty. They said, yes. And one student said, I don't know how to make it better. And so they all see themselves, in other words, as political actors who are trying to improve things. And I'm just thinking, oh, you have to be close readers and you have to, your analysis has to be rooted in, you know, this historical context. Yeah. And I want you to explore language and, you know, the way that language meaning shifts. But they really are looking at these as templates, not the, not the text themselves, but reading the text as templates about how to be in the world. And right. I was, I'm, I'm touched by that and terrified by it because I don't want people to feel like they have to perform a politics for me. But mm -hmm. um, when we get to pop culture, my students invariably feel uncomfortable because they want to believe that the pop culture that they assume is teaching them good values. Or at the very least, mm -hmm. it's not promoting yeah. bad ones. And it's so stark. So it's good or it's bad. And I want us to think critically about the work and and right. what it what it teaches us to think about society, but they are they want to go out and make things. Not every single one of them, but they feel it in a different way than I um, than I expected. 
and we are back. I for one would love to take Patricia's class. I think that she is talking about, and that both of you were talking about literature in a way that I was never taught it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, granted I didn't take any or many lit classes at university. They were all like writing classes, right. but it wasn't like critical thinking, okay. Mm-hmm. But if I had, then this is the class that I would have wanted to take. Yeah. Um, I think really until we started doing Bonnets at Dawn, I didn't think that critically of the Jane Austen novels. And certainly, you know, I'm better read now than I was, but I wasn't thinking of them massively in the context of the time or what the subtext was gonna be. I was taking them very much at surface level. And I do think that I was taking for granted that before I'd ever read Jane Austen extensively, I was already like super aware of the brand of Jane Austen, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And I definitely, definitely recognized myself in uh, Trisha's description of her white students, but I think that was maybe me circa season one of Bonnets at Dawn. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes a lot of like wider reading and just knowing like the way I read something or have always read something is not necessarily going to be correct and that's it's totally fine and people say it and like I think people say it's such a positive thing when we talk about like persuasion and when you read it when you're 19 you maybe read it one way and then you read it when you're single at 27 and you read it a very different way I really look forward to reading it again in my 40s and knowing it's a different book but how often do we do that and think that actually our understanding of like race and history and gender politics and other books has changed. Like we're always mm-hmm. learning. So the way we read should change yes. as well. And I've really found that with Mansfield Park, I think more than any of her books that I've read as an adult. And then just on a wider note as well, I think this conversation reminded me of a point I was making. And um, I spoke at the, was it the beginning of this year? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I uh, taught a class at Strathclyde University that Louise, one of our listeners invited me to come and do. And we talked about Austin's coercion by the alt-right mm-hmm. and how, uh, co-option, sorry. And um, I mentioned just colorblind casting and kind of explaining that if we're being really frank, one of the reasons that I wish there were more people of color cast in adaptations was so I could enjoy them guilt-free. And by that, I do specifically mean white guilt-free. Mm-hmm because I don't think it's possible to enjoy Austin when discussions of race and gender and or you know just all of the stuff are removed from the equation and I do think it can be hard to reframe the way we think about things we love if we're just being given it in the same way again and again and again mm-hmm. and that's in a way that is like historically inaccurate and tone deaf I don't mm-hmm. un- you know I can't understand it and I do I do question why when we have or when you read like, we read quite widely about Jane Austen and there are some like upsetting articles out there talking about Jane Austen and why she should be read in the ethno state. And it makes me question why I'm even involved in like the community or why I'm reading books that people could read into that. And so, you know, having conversations like this and just being able to like re-educate myself or reframe how I think about the novels is just, it's useful and important for me as a reader. So I appreciated this conversation and this read along and just having a space to do that in. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's interesting to me too, to like, to hear that point of view from you, because I have to say like, um, as a woman of color, when I'm approaching texts like this, I never really feel the need to fix things. It's like, 
I'm aware of like the historic, like what's happening at that time historically. And it's on my mind and it's on my mind as far as like what was going on with my family and my ancestors. Um, so I don't have this need to fix it. But what's really nice is to see an acknowledgement. And so that is what I've actually come to really appreciate with Mansfield Park this time around. And so, um, you know, we've had a lot of conversations in our Facebook group about whether or not this is an abolitionist text. And I think it's a very broad text that has abolitionist themes, right? I think she's holding this mirror up to society and like kind of like shining a light on these hypocritical people, which is what is, you know, we, we talked about in the mm -hmm. first part of the show, that's what's happening. Um, so yeah, I, and I think that's important. I think it's important to take a look at the institutions that uphold slavery. We don't need to have a direct conversation about slavery or about race. And I think a lot of people in our group were struggling about that. They're like, no, it's not directly mentioned. So it's definitely not about race. And we, and also that Jane Austen didn't fix it. She didn't give us a solution to the problem. And I think that's beyond Austen's writing. And I appreciate that she didn't go there. Yeah. I appreciate that she is telling you about people that she would know mm -hmm. and that she, you know, could actually accurately describe. So I like the acknowledgement and I, I like appreciate what she's done with the text. I don't need her to fix it. And I think that we actually just, when we're dealing with you know books about race, about gender, about feminism, we can read more broadly. We don't, you know, if we're reading a feminist book, it doesn't need to actually dismantle the patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. We can just talk about feminist issues. Or something as it is, or like as right. it exists, like a snapshot. Right, exactly. And Mansfield Park gives you that snapshot of, you know, what it means to be complicit and how easy it is to look the other way when slavery is happening, you know, all the way over there in Antigua, right? And um, I just think that these are two very important factors that upheld the institution of slavery. So, you know, I just appreciate Austin's take on this. And then the other, you know, also I will say that um, I don't necessarily think like my past readings of Mansfield Park were wrong. Like the right. you know, themes totally. like totally. So it's still a story of when people say, Oh, that's like a superficial reading of a text and stuff, like that's one level, but like all novels can be read on different levels. And that right. doesn't mean like top level one, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, they go off and get married. That's mm -hmm. still a reading of the text. Like that's still true and all of those feelings or emotions that that storyline evokes that's still that's still a valid reading of the text like right. the readings that 19 year old hannah 12 year old hannah like they still mean something right that's what i'm getting from it this is just like an additional take right. exactly it's not it doesn't replace it it's just more totally so I actually really liked that link that Trisha makes about um, Fanny being seen as a commodity because mm -hmm. uh, as we all know from the last few episodes, I do really struggle to think about Fanny at all. Like, a little bit, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. she doesn't really <laughs> spring to mind when I think about Mansfield Park, which is bizarre because she's the, the lead character. And I do think I lean more into conversations about Mary Crawford because I take a lot more from her as a character. Mm -hmm. uh, but this read through, I've had to, I've been really, really aware just through the conversations that we've been having that Fanny is coded as right and mm -hmm. good. So we talk about her as being like the good character 
Uh, but then with this read through, I have been really aware of how when we discuss Fanny, she's discussed in like very moralistic terms. So she's mm-hmm. discussed as being the good character or she's been uh, she's discussed as being right or the moral center of the book. And in my opinion, her lack of action and her inability to change the course of events maybe makes her less good and that the more appropriate word would be complicit. Right. Um, that ripples, ripples, not waves, yeah. right? Ripples, not waves. And then when you read that in the abolitionist viewpoint, it then becomes extra chilling because then it's like, what is she complicit in? Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to dig into this yeah. more because I've been thinking about it all week. So we got onto the topic of the final chapter of the novel and how it feels totally different to the rest of the book. And I was saying it feels very rushed. It feels exposition heavy rather than us actually getting at the action. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways that feels like un And I was frustrated by the final chapter and you know, because so much happens, like Edmund and Fanny, like finally get together in it and Mariah and Aunt Norris get sent off and like all of these things, all of these scenes that I feel like I are delivered in other Austin novels are not delivered in Mansfield Park. Yeah. And I just don't care about the ending as much because of it. But then you had like a really great point, I think, about it not being accidental, but being a narrative technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, because actually, and I will say this, Eleanor had a great point in our Facebook group, which I really love, is that Austin is really great at um, showing and telling. So like you have your narrator, you know, saying one thing and then your character's doing another thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, she's great. She's this is why she's funny. This is why, you know, she's ironic. This is what we love about her. But you don't have that in the last chapter, right? It's just like, boom, 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 boom. All these things happen. And really the big problem with the Fanny Edmund relationship is that you don't see it, right? At the end, like, you're just kind of giving it. Like, all right, yeah, they fell in love, and yeah, Fanny's, just, like, what, pregnant? It's great, everyone's happy, okay, you know? And then they go live with... It's just, it's too much happens, mm-hmm. and it's not satisfying, because you're also not getting that push and pull. You're not getting, like... You feel cheated. You feel cheated. Right, and then we also talked a lot about just um, Sir Thomas and his, like, reconciliation with Fanny at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a theme that comes up a lot, uh, especially when we talk about the book as being like an abolitionist text. Like, so Thomas is the character that we kind of bring up as an example of why it couldn't be that, uh, that can't be the subtext, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I know that in 1978, Edward, is it Edward Said or Edward Said? I have heard it pronounced both ways, I have to say. So I'm so sorry. Okay, I see, I thought it was Edward Said. So that's Mm -hmm. what I'll say. Correct us if we're wrong. Well, we're not wrong because we've said it both ways. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So in 1978, he said that Sir Thomas is the archetypal good master. Mm -hmm. And so I do understand why in that context, his reconciliation with Fanny, you would just read it and be like, oh, so like, they're totally fine. And so if you're reading it with the view that uh, said did, it's like, oh, Austin's condoning slavery because Fanny and Sir Thomas reconcile. And that means that Fanny being the moral good is accepting Sir Thomas's view or money or you know whatever it is she's Mm -hmm. now aligning herself with him and she's the moral good which means that's right and that's Austin's opinion so Austin approves of slavery right but I think it's really important to consider the fact that Fanny might be wrong 
not in her reconciliation necessarily with Sir Thomas, like as the father figure, fine. But when we think about her as the moral center, like maybe the center is off. Mm -hmm. So she's the moral center of the story, but that doesn't mean she's right. right. And it doesn't mean that that's what Austin thinks. And so everyone can kind of orbit around her or kind of finally agree with her actions or it all falls into line with how Fanny sees the world. But how Fanny sees the world doesn't necessarily mean that that is how Austin sees the world. And mm -hmm. we know that she writes, uh, writes tricksily, I want to say, with her characters. Right. Um, in Pride and Prejudice, you don't like Mr. Darcy until Elizabeth likes Mr. Darcy. It's the same in Emma. Uh, the minute we find out that Mr. Elton is a bit of a boob, like, you know, all of these things, we learn stuff as the characters learn stuff and we don't get given that opportunity in Mansfield Park because she's right the entire time. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the book, it's like, oh, hang on. Why everything's, everything's coming up dandy for Fanny. So what's going on there? Is Austin asking us to view this as peace being restored to Mansfield Park? Because in this scenario, peace is the family's return to the status quo rather than a new normal because one daughter replaces another Fanny replaces Mariah and Fanny is replaced by Susan. So this is restoration, it's not disruption. Everything is the same. Nothing within the household really progresses because the roles within the family are just reinforced. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this lack of disruption that makes it really hard for contemporary readers to view Mansfield Park as an abolitionist text. Because when we, the reader, see the end of Mansfield Park as being a happy ending, and you've read this whole thing as being a big metaphor for the slave trade, we're like, oh, it's a happy ending. Well, then how does that work? Right. Are we then complicit in that? And it's like, no, because you're meant to question, is this a happy ending mm -hmm. at all? So it's coded happy, but maybe it doesn't mean anything. It's like sinister. Yeah. I love this idea of like the moral center being off kilter in this book because you know i just keep coming back to that idea off of hypocrisy kilter is the exact wording i've been trying to find for like a is week. it yeah <laughs> like, how do i say off center <laughs> it's funny because while you were describing fanny just now i also kept thinking about the poet elizabeth barrett browning who was who could also be coded almost as an angel in the house, right? That mm -hmm. sort of like good daughter, like moral center of the home, um, you know, stayed in her bedroom for most of her life, like writing poetry, writing protest poetry, writing abolitionist poetry, mm -hmm. right? And um, her father owned a plantation and the money, you know, like that was coming into the household, like yeah, was, you know, off the backs of slaves. So... Um, so there's a moral center there, but it's also compromised, which is um, which is a lot like England itself, right? I just really think that Austin is holding up this giant mirror to society as if to say, you know, you talk a big game, but underneath it all, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Like that's, I just, that is my big takeaway from Mansfield Park this time around, honestly. Um, I think I've said before as well that like, definitely in our Facebook discussion that I'm really drawn to Mariah more mm -hmm. in this read along. Like I've got a lot more compassion for her and a lot more empathy for her situation. Uh, I think she's very hasty. She rushes into her marriage with Rushworth to prove a point. She was in love with Henry Crawford. She really feels it when he goes away. And there's this really 
I haven't included it in the notes here, but there's this line when he comes to tell the family that he's leaving for London and she's like, that hand, that hand that, you know, was pressed to her breast is like, he's leaving willingly and it's motionless now, you know, and he was mm -hmm. so active and now he's, he's so passive. And I think it really spurs her on. Um, I don't think it's an accident that both Sir Thomas's daughters, so Julia and Mariah, they both run away in order to achieve freedom right? They run mm -hmm. away from Mansfield Park. They make poor choices um, to get away from like that constrained household, to get away from Aunt Norris. But, you know, I don't think it's an accident that Mariah is then captured. She gets brought back and then she's punished by forced captivity in close proximity to her Aunt Norris. Mm -hmm. Like that runaway imagery, it's just like, I don't know, it really struck me this right. time that yeah. they like they get out and then Mariah is brought back and then you know I think someone somewhere we read oh she got the punishment that Lydia Bennett deserved and like yeah. that's really troubling for all of the things that I said about Mary Crawford last week I don't think Mariah deserves to be punished I don't think that's what Austin is doing I think it's a sad ending I think we should feel very sad for Mariah yeah um, it's interesting that you say that too. I think some of the conversation that I had with Trisha too was also um, about writers like Hannah Moore, um, Amelia Opie, um, who are white women writing about abolitionist, you know, themes. Um, but in in Wollstonecraft as well, they you know haven't seen it up close. They don't have anything to compare it to, so they do compare slavery to the plight of women. So those things are happening a lot in some of these texts as well. And yeah, I think you do see it here as well in Mansfield Park. Um, we do need to bring it back to Fanny though, because mm -hmm. I promised I would talk about Fanny. Yep. <laughs> but I'm gonna talk about Fanny by talking about Susan. Okay. Because I can't talk about Fanny. Right, that's fair. <laughs> so um, I, I think it's also noticeable that uh, Fanny, in order to be able to move up within society and within the household at Mansfield Park has to be physically replaced uh, by Susan. Susan, who is not only emotionally more suitable for the role, but who is like physically stronger too. Mm -hmm. So there's this quote uh, in the last chapter, which goes, Susan became the stationary niece, delighted to be so and equally well adapted for it by a readiness of mind and an inclination for usefulness as Fanny had been by sweetness of temper and strong feelings of gratitude. Susan could never be spared. Chilling. Uh, first as a comfort to Fanny and then as an auxiliary and last as her substitute. She was established at Mansfield with every appearance of equal permanency. Her more fearless disposition and happier nerves made everything easy to her there. With quickness and understanding the tempers of those she had to deal with and no natural timidity to restrain any consequent wishes, she was soon welcome and useful to all. And after Fanny's removal succeeded so naturally to her influence over the hourly comfort of her aunt as gradually to become perhaps the most beloved of the two. Mm. And um, I think one of the reasons I was thinking about this like sister swapping was just that uh, Mary P shared this article in our Facebook group. And I read the statistic in there that it, to create a steady population of 20,000 slaves in Antigua, they had to ship 150,000 people over there. Yeah, talk about chilling. Like that is yeah. um, wild. And so that process is known as seasoning. And then I was like, hang on. So I, it's not like a perfect analogy and sure, like say I'm clutching at straws, but um, I think the fact that it takes the Bertram some time to find 
the right price to fit their needs, a price that is more capable and used to the work that will be required of her from the initial, uh, the additional years she spends in Pompey roughing it up. I like, I just can't help but see a connection there. Mm-hmm. And I like, I mean, those numbers are just. Also, I feel like such an idiot, but now I'm also thinking about Fanny's name and we've always called her Fanny, but I'm also now like, oh, Price. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like every, like, it's just a really big book and there is a lot. And I just don't feel smart enough to tackle it, honestly. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I've had this thought. And then I have to like run it by you. And I'm like, is this crazy? Like, (laughs) am I jump? Like, am I? But then when you kind of start to think about it like this and just there are there are so many articles that talk about Mansfield Park in this context, but also just reading articles about the time, like it all. Yeah. It's also like eye opening. Um, so yeah, I do. I do wonder uh, if it's like a failure of Mansfield Park as a text, or maybe it's us as readers failing the novel that we are kind of given the room to see this final chapter as a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So Fanny is rewarded for her servitude with comfort and position, but then what is the price of this comfort? Right. <laughs> uh, so once her you know at one time her questions about the slave trade uh, met with like a deathly silence but now that it's not only her own life that is reliant on the income that the slave trade brings but the lives of her sister her brother and her future children are we meant to believe that the same fanny price who was so capable of seeing the wrongs in others throughout the entire novel and yet so powerless to change them will manage to make any changes in the future or do we accept the ending as Fanny sees it knowing after all she's always right so I do think that Austin leaves Mansfield Park the same way that she found it it's unchanged it's a relentlessly turning wheel Mansfield Park just as Britain will uh, continues to profit from the estates in Antigua because it's more comfortable to do so and I wonder had Austin given us a fanny who is wrong within the context of the novel would it be easier for us to see today that perhaps her right isn't so morally centre after all and then the last thing uh, when I was rereading the last line I was just I was really struck by like just it's half of the last sentence Mm -hmm. and it goes They removed to Mansfield and the parsonage there, which under each of its two former owners, Fanny had never been able to approach with but some painful sensation of restraint or alarm, soon grew as dear to her heart and as thoroughly perfect in her eyes as everything else within the view and patronage of Mansfield Park had long been. Yeah. And it's it's that bit, as everything else within the view and patronage of Mansfield Park had long been. I think Austin is specifically telling us that Fanny now views everything within the patronage of Mansfield Park as perfect. And that's specific language. Mm -hmm. And that is where the idea of uh, complicit behavior comes in for me. And I think that that is uh, a damning final sentence. Okay, so we are nearly done this week. We're sorry it's such a heavy (laughs) one. Uh, There's just been so much conversation about it. I think we were both a little worried or hesitant about recording this episode because it's such a big subject and we just want to make sure that we're getting everything right. We just want to do it thoughtfully. Yeah, and like respectfully to Jane Austen, whose work I love and I'm really enjoying getting to know better. Um, And I think that, Something that's been really useful is just how much reading, uh, like uh, outside reading we've had to do for Mansfield Park. I think mm-hmm. more so than any of our other read-alongs, Yeah, absolutely. Right? 
Um, we were lucky enough to read an article that Trisha has written but not yet published about her experiences of reading and teaching Mansfield Park. And it really reinforced something that I got from Helena Kelly's book and interview too. And that is that for us to really understand Mansfield Park and to get to the root of it, and honestly, probably all of her novels, I think we need to be reading more broadly. So not just essays about these texts, but uh, essays about the abolitionist movement and women's role and you know, merchandise and commercialism, history, the slave trade, uh, fashion, just just all of it like we really and like that's a big undertaking but I think we can all kind of we can all do that together we we come at Mansfield Park today with about half the knowledge that we need to really read it right properly and I think that's why it's so easy for us to read it myself included on a surface level so shout out again to Mary P for sharing that challenging article about the alleged Antiguan slave conspiracy of 1736 that's in the Facebook group it 100% gave me another angle on what the Bertrams are involved in and also the sort of stuff that Sir Thomas was facing and involved in when he was going to his plantations, right? right? And a better understanding of why the 1999 adaptation, which I know wasn't perfect, but why it felt like it had to go in so hard with the visual representation of violence against slaves because I think it's easy to miss that nuance without the context. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing a film, it's like, right, we've got a second to get that information in mm -hmm. without exposition. Right. So yeah, I think that it's context, it's easy to gloss over and to forget. And so yeah, big thanks to Mary. And so I wanna set a challenge for our listeners. Okay, sounds good. I would like you all, if you've already read something that has changed your mind about Mansfield Park or you know, you just think is really interesting or something that you hadn't thought of or a historical fact, share it in the Facebook group. Mm -hmm. We all want to like know more and to understand more. So even if it's just something as simple as like, I read an article about the importance of the word um, envelope in Pride and Prejudice, mm -hmm. which totally changed my mind about Caroline Bingley. Oh, well, it didn't wow. change my mind, but I was like, oh, she is a massive bitch. So I thought she was a bit of a bitch. She's a massive, huge bitch. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it, it might seem insignificant, but just share it and then see, because we haven't all read the same stuff. We don't all have the same approach. That's my transnational master's degree creeping in there. But we all have we all have a different viewpoint and we can expand them by sharing stuff. So, And can I add, just as a former librarian, I hate to say it, but I have to. Just check the source. <laughs> <laughs> just check this. Just look at it. Just just take a look. We want to make sure we're we're sharing some, just like valid information. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just as you, you guys already do a great job with this. I mean, I feel like I don't really need to say it. We got so many librarians in our Facebook group already. That yeah. Are ready watch to out. Crack they'll, that whip. So yeah. They'll crack it. I'm sure you guys. You guys are fine. But um, two that I will be sharing. Um, the one I mentioned earlier, The Chronology of Mansfield Park by J.A. Downey. That's from the Modern Philosophy Journal, which is uh, published by University of Chicago. Great article, um, really detailed, but also really like a really nice, easy to understand timeline. Um, and it's just really interesting. Another one that I will be sharing that we really could have done this episode entirely about <laughs> is Ambiguous Cousinship 
Mansfield Park and the Mansfield Family by Christine Kenyon Jones. She is from King's College, London, and it was in the Persuasions Journal, so the Jasna Journal. Oh, cool. Um, and this article compares and contrasts the positions that Fanny and Dido Bell occupy in their family. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Very similar when you think about it. And it also kind of harkens back to um, when Trisha was challenging her students to think of Fanny. Like, what if Fanny was a black woman? Like, and, you know, and they like kind of scoffed at her. But really, if you've seen the movie, if you read the book, guys, Belle does occupy a very similar space to Fanny. And it's a very interesting comparison. I do want to say as well, just that um, it's like a very popular take in uh, the Jane Austen like, fan fiction community and when doing like a rewrite of Mansfield Park mm-hmm. to make Fanny Price a biracial character. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and as a way of like bringing that conversation just into the forefront mm-hmm. and out of out of the subtext, yeah. Yeah, and I um I will say that is um one of the things I really enjoyed most about Kate Hamill's adaptation of Mansfield Park that I saw earlier this year. Um so yeah, I do feel like, you know, this is a conversation a lot of people are having. I'm glad that we're jumping in there as well. Um, it's nice whenever I can have these discussions too, I think as a woman of color, because there's not a lot of opportunity for them within this community that I love so much. And um, I wanna thank all of you guys for having such thoughtful conversations about it in our Facebook group. It's really important to me that we keep conversations about you know, sex, gender, race, you know, thoughtful in that group and and really open because um, this is a welcoming community. I just, you know, I, I know you guys know it, but I feel like it needs to be reinforced and those ideas are, you know, are welcome here. So yeah, so please keep doing all the great work that you guys are doing. And if you would like to join in this conversation or further conversations, you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook by searching Bonnets at Dawn in the search bar. Yeah.